0: As we implement these NIL changes, our student athletes must remain students and not become employees of colleges and universities. And last, student athletes are not university employees. Their first priority is to be students working towards a college degree. Any legislation must also guarantee that student athletes are still considered students, not employees of an institution. Using NIL to create an employment framework would destroy college sports as we know it. College sports is not a vocation and the participants are not employees. But without proper guardrails and structure, some NIL proposals threaten to undermine the core values of college sports by allowing payments for NIL to serve as pay for play and potentially turning college athletes into employees. First and most importantly, we must recognize that we are dealing with students who are and should remain students and not employees. We cannot allow college athletics to devolve into a pay for play system that exists only as a training ground for a handful of future professionals and infringes on the integrity of the recruitment process. So the main benefit these students take away is their educational degree. It's not about coming here to earn money and to be an employee. If you like to be a student-athlete, your earnings should benefit all student-athletes at your institutions. If you want to keep the money and be someone's employees, then go join a professional team. Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, which is bigamateurism.com. And I've also been writing in a blog for over two years now. And that blog can be found at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right. Now it's time for us to take a look at this year, 2014, that I've talked a bit about in prior episodes. And it's really an important year in the evolution of the relationship between the revenue-producing athletes who provide the value in the big-time college sports marketplace and the institutions and people who benefit from that labor. So we talked about the antitrust suits in the last episode. And how they began to influence the way that the powerful in system stakeholders were thinking about external regulatory threats. And these antitrust suits were much different than the congressional threats that Big Time Football and Miles Brand were trying to manage leading into Miles Brand's 2006 State of the Association speech. Because these suits, these antitrust suits, were really going to the heart of the NCAA amateurism model, and they were directly challenging these compensation limits. And that, I think, really started to shift the thinking among the powerful inside interests, the NCAA National Office, and the movers and shakers on the Power Five side. And I also think that it's at this time that you start to see these powerful interests starting to think more about a more comprehensive solution to eliminating these external threats. And I believe the events of 2014 really accelerated that strategy. And in just a minute, I'm going to go through what all of those specific events were in 2014. But before I do that, I just want to create a bridge from where we left off in the last episode to 2014, because a few important things happened. So in 2009, we had the O'Bannon suit that was filed. And then That suit started to really gain some steam heading into the discovery phase and the pretrial motion phase. And I think that the participants were beginning to get a sense of how Judge Wilkin was thinking about some of these issues, both the fact-based issues and the legal issues. And it was not as NCAA friendly as I think the NCAA was hoping for. So the anxiety level really started to ratchet up in proportion to the progress of that O'Bannon suit. And then a couple of other things that are really important happened in that 2009 to 2014 timeframe. And one is that in, in 2009, Miles Brand passed away from pancreatic cancer, so that was an important event in the history of the NCAA because Brand really was a consequential leader and he had created this really foundational philosophical justification for the marriage of, the, of professionalized big-time football and men's basketball and the academic mission and integrity of the university and the amateurism-based model for big-time college sports. And that model was being challenged quite directly in these antitrust suits, and Brand wasn't around to defend the... Justification that he created. And he was a, a very smart man and he had some great ideas. This collegiate model, I think, was he just took a wrong turn and, and kept going. And he didn't have the opportunity to see it through. So Brand passes away and then there's an interim NCAA chief executive. And then the NCAA Board of Governors in 2010 hires Mark Emmert. And I just want to reemphasize that the NCAA president is not elected by the membership. The NCAA president is hired by the NCAA Board of Governors, which is the only association-wide governing board. The NCAA president reports to the NCAA Board of Governors, and the Board of Governors is in complete control over the terms of his employment and the length of his employment. He serves at the pleasure of the Board of Directors. And that is so important because a lot of people just assume that the guy who's sitting in the captain's chair has the full support of the membership. And he really doesn't have a direct connection to the membership. He is doing the business and the bidding of the national office and the board of governors. And this characterization that, you know, Brand and Emmert both tried to create that the NCAA president was just this sort of neutral arbiter of all of these interests that really ran the ncaa i think was really misleading so emert comes in and he's a much different ncaa president and i'm gonna hold off on talking about emert i'll I'll get to him at some point, and we'll probably do a couple of episodes. But I think that he is exactly what the NCAA wanted, and he's been doing exactly what the national office wants him to do, what the board of governors wants him to do, and more importantly, what the Power Five interests want him to do. So you had that change. And then in 2012, you had a really important shift in the big-time football marketplace when all of the big-time football interests, the former BCS folks, put together the college football playoff. And that entity was incorporated in 2012. They did a a long-term deal with ESPN that was valued at about half a billion dollars a year. And under that format, they were having their cake and eating it too because now they had this brand-new national championship that had all the intrigue and potential uh, market value of, of championship tournaments And then they also kept the major bowl tie-ins. And then they brought along this group of five, the second tier folks who had been nipping at their heels for the last 20 years and trying to claim a seat at the table. And they put a lot of pressure on Congress to get involved. So you had that issue being reconciled in the formation of the CFP, but the big time powerful football interests, the power five, which were fully formed by 2012, they owned the CFP and they get 80% of the revenue. We've, We've talked a little bit about that, but that was a consequential event. And then As O'Bannon was starting to heat up and it was heading into the pre-trial phase, and in 2013, you started to see some cracks in the foundation of the relationship between the Power Five and the NCAA because the Power Five really wanted to try to get ahead of the O'Bannon momentum, and there was a sense that there really needed to be some change that suggested that the big time interests, the ones who were benefiting from all of this exploitation and the labor of these athletes needed to give something back at least for public relations purposes and so there was increasing pressure on the ncaa to grant the power five autonomy which occurred in 2014 we're going to talk about that in more detail Now you have to remember that in i think it was 2011 the uh, big-time football interest wanted to give their athletes a $2,000 a year stipend. It was similar to the full cost of attendance scholarship, but it, but it was a fixed sum, kind of like laundry money. And the membership voted that down. And again, we'll talk more about that when I get to the autonomy classification and what exactly the Power Five wanted, what I think their motives were and how that ultimately played out. And, and that was important in redefining the relationship between the big-time revenue-producing sports and the rest of the NCAA. So you have some issues percolating in the background as we head into 2014. And then in January of 2014, all hell broke loose in, in college sports. And that started with this Northwestern football proceeding in a National Labor Relations Board in Chicago, in which the Northwestern football players were trying to form a union. And I'm going to come back to that, but that really set off a firestorm of controversy and fear and the the sky was falling from the perspective of the NCAA and the powerful football interests. So you had that j- right out of the blocks at the beginning of 2014. And then in May, uh, the Pac-12, and I think the Big Ten may have done this as well, they published a specific 10-point plan of things that they wanted to do but couldn't do because of NCAA compensation limits at the time. And they were really pushing uh, hard to get some autonomy outside of the rest of the NCAA governance process that would allow the, the big-time football interest, the, the Power 5 interests, to give these athletes some, some benefits. And they were threatening to leave the NCAA and there was a lot of chest pounding. And you had that same cycle that played out starting in the nineteen seventies where football asserts its its dominance and they want special treatment and special privileges. And they say if you don't give it to us, we're gonna leave. And and that was really the dynamic in 2014. So the conferences are starting to put pressure on the NCAA. Then in June you had the O'Bannon trial, and that lasted between June 9th and June 27th. And that trial generated enormous public interest. It was covered from beginning to end by the media. And the basic narrative that started to come out of that trial was, was that Judge Wilkin really wasn't a team player for the NCAA and the Power Five interests. And that, of course, ratcheted up the, the fear. And then that's coming on the backside of this Northwestern case. And so you really started to have the big-time in-system stakeholders, the status quo power brokers in big-time college sports, getting very, very nervous. Then another thing happened in June that is really consequential, but I don't think I've heard anybody talk about, and that is that the NCAA hired a big-time Washington lobbying firm, Brownstein-Hyatt, and then on June 13th of of 2014, Brownstein-Hyatt made its first appearance as a registered lobbyist for the NCAA in the United States Senate, okay, and The timing of that isn't coincidental because on July 9th, there was a hearing in the Senate Commerce Committee chaired by Jay Rockefeller. And In that clip that I played before the last episode, that was that exchange between Jay Rockefeller and Mark Emmert on some of the litigation tactics that the NCAA had employed in suits filed by athletes. And that was a very important hearing because... That is where Mark Emmert laid out the case for the autonomy conferences. He went to Congress, and they didn't talk about the autonomy conferences. They didn't talk about O'Bannon. They didn't talk directly or or, or link directly this Northwestern unionization attempt and the threat that that posed. But Emmert went in with a specific purpose, and that was to lay the foundation for these new benefits that the— Power Five were going to provide athletes, and he used that as evidence of NCAA magnanimity, when in fact, behind the scenes, the Power Five were threatening to leave if the NCAA didn't agree. So Emery was managing all of these things, and that's a very interesting hearing, and I'm going to talk a lot about that, and that's probably going to be in a separate episode. And then, less than a month later, actually, on August 6th, The NCAA Division I Board of Directors voted 16 to 2 to grant the Power Five this autonomy status. All the things that Emmert was talking about in in that July 11th hearing and all the things that the Power Five conferences had been pressuring the NCAA to provide. They get that authority, and they're put into an entirely separate classification where they can independently pass legislation outside of the NCAA governance process in certain defined areas. And uh, then on August 8th, just two days later... Judge Wilkin issues her ruling in the O'Bannon case, and that was a huge story, and it was uh, consequential for a number of reasons, and I've talked quite a bit about the O'Bannon case and how little the ethics actually got out of it when all was said and done, but at the time that Judge Wilkin issued her opinion on August 6, 2014, the real story was that the NCAA had been subjected to antitrust scrutiny, that the uh, court found that they w- were within the scope of federal antitrust laws, and that their compensation limits were anti-competitive, and that the NCAA had to defend them under a full rule of reason analysis, which then brought in this amateurism-based uh, defense as a pro-competitive justification. So in the context of all of these events that were playing out in 2014, Judge Wilkins' ruled. Was significant and it really scared the heck out of the NCAA and the Power Five. And then on August 17th, this Northwestern suit, which had been through the initial phase, was really put on ice by the National Labor Relations Board. And I'm going to talk about that more specifically in just a second. So you had all these things happening and, and they really had an impact on the backside on the fundamental relationship between the revenue-producing athletes and the institutional interests. And really, that's what we're talking about in this pay-for-play discussion. So now let's go to this Northwestern case. And the reason this case is so, so important is that the central factual inquiry in determining whether or not the Northwestern football players were entitled to form a union was whether or not they were employees of Northwestern University. And that central question goes to the heart of the NCAA business model and its amateurism-based business model because a fundamental precept of the business model is that universities cannot pay their athletes because if they do... Then the athletes are employees. And this goes right back to what Walter Byers was trying to wrestle with in the 1950s and the very reason that he created the fraudulent phrase, the student athlete. And the NCAA's purposeful insinuation of that phrase into its business model and into its language and into its propaganda is so central to the way that we think about college sports today. And trying to shake people out of that conditioned response to the phrase student-athlete, which means amateur ideal, and scholar-athlete, and academics first, and all of this stuff is almost impossible. It's like trying to convince an atheist that God exists and you're just not going to get anywhere. And that's happening in real time right now with all of these name, image, and likeness proposals, both in Congress and in state legislatures and by independent bodies like the Uniform Law Commission that are putting together these state nil laws. And the all of those laws, directly or indirectly, absolutely adopt and endorse the concept of the student-athlete. And that's the starting point. That's the launch pad for all of these nil proposals. And once you buy into that principle as, a, as your starting point, then you have really made it very difficult to provide any meaningful nil compensation because what comes through that are the protection of all the institutional interests. And then either explicitly or implicitly, you're having the amateurism concept or the collegiate model concept being brought into the thinking and how these bills are structured. And what you're left with are bills that leave very little for the athletes, the room for them to maneuver in this Nil marketplace, if it really ever exists, is very narrow and basically they're splashing around in the nil kiddie pool. But we're going to get into that when we start breaking down the event starting in May of 2019. So let me just set the table a little bit for this Northwestern case. This is an administrative proceeding and the rules for how you go about forming a union are very complicated, and I'm not a labor lawyer. It's a very complicated area of the law, and it confuses the heck out of me. So, if I misstate this and we have some labor lawyers listening to this and laughing, give me a break. But I'm trying, what I really want to get to is just enough of the preliminaries to get us to this actual analysis that the regional labor relations hearing officer did on that central question of whether or not these football players were employees. And that is a fact-driven, context-driven analysis. So the mover and shaker on the athlete side was an athlete named Kane Coulter, and he was Northwestern's quarterback. Coulter was a team leader. He was a two-time captain of the team. He was an all-Big Ten academic selection. And by all accounts, at least prior to this unionization attempt, Coulter w- was deemed as a, a leader and had the respect of his teammates and his coaches. So Coulter was leading this effort in conjunction with an athlete's rights advocate on the West Coast, a guy n- named Remoji Huma who has a nonprofit out there, and he's a former UCLA football player, and he's been pretty front and center in some of these athletes' rights issues. I'm going to talk about him later on when we get to the hearings in the Senate in 2020 because he appeared at three of them. I think there were four hearings. And so he was helping Coulter and Huma's organization – had support the support of the Steelworkers Union. And that became controversial and there were all kinds of he said, she said issues surrounding this story coming into it. And then on the back side of it and there were some ugly components to that. And I'm gonna hold off on that. I'm gonna talk about it because it also took on a racial tone and uh is African American. And on the back side of this there at least by accounts, by credible third party accounts, there was a racial divide as well, and we're going to talk about that honestly. But So culture comes into the case as kind of the, the face of this movement, and one of the things you have to do before you can file a proceeding to try to make the case that you're entitled to form a union is that you have to form the employee class, and you have to have them sign union cards. And so there were meetings before they filed this proceeding, and most of the team members signed the union cards and that then gave the organization that they formed really just for the sole purposes of being the movement and the plaintiff in in this uh, proceeding they then had the authority to file an action and then start the process and this is an administrative process so the way that and this was also uh, in federal court so there are state labor laws or federal labor laws it's very complicated how they interact with each other but this case was filed at the federal level and you do the federal jurisdiction for labor hearings is uh, divided by region. And they filed in region 13, which, was, which is in Chicago. And that's where Northwestern is located. That board had a jurisdiction. And then you go in and you go before a hearing officer. And that hearing officer presides over the hearing. And it's an evidentiary hearing. They take evidence. Witnesses testify, and then they subpoena documents. And so you have a lot of the same features of a regular lawsuit, but it's not quite as formal, and the rules of evidence are not quite as strict. And the basic notion is is let everything come in, and then the hearing officer will tease it all out. And you don't have a jury. This is just a, a person who specializes in labor law. And then the... Hearing officer in conjunction with the regional director issues an opinion on the back side. And this moves pretty quickly. This is a it's not a you know, long, drawn-out, year-after-year deal like these antitrust suits. So once the, the cards are signed and the union organization, the employee group, goes to file their action and start the proceedings, and when the filing of that proceeding hits the media, the NCAA, the Power Five, All of their army of co-conspirators and their whole array of soldiers out in the field fighting the good fight for amateurism and the student-athlete and the collegiate model, they go ballistic. They just go nuts. And there's an outcry that that there's any way that a group of athletes, revenue-producing athletes, could be deemed employees. And the NCAA and the Power Five and all their satellite supporters, very powerful satellite supporters, all were screaming, no, this is the existential threat, and this is going to be the death of college sports as we know it. And unlike some of their chicken little arguments in that regard that they've made time and time again, this this time it was real. This was the real dagger in the NCAA's heart, much more so than these antitrust suits, much more so than any of these congressional hearings or threats by external regulators or these state nil laws. Of all of those external threats, this was the most serious and the most legitimate because this went to the very core of every aspect of the NCAA's business model and this cap on labor that they enforce at the national level. And that is premised on the assumption, this amateurism-based, collegiate model-based assumption that these guys are primarily students and not primarily athletes. And this inquiry was going to the very heart of that belief system. And again, this wasn't being conducted under rules that the NCAA could control. This was going to be an independent fact-finding mission by an independent arbiter looking at the evidence and looking at the truth of the relationship, not how the NCAA describes it. And I've talked many times about how the NCAA's propaganda strategy and their public relations strategy is based on just applying labels To aspects of their business model, and then going out and propagandizing that label in the media and in courts and in Congress to make it almost unchallengeable without ever looking underneath that label to see if it in any way accurately represents the business model. And when you look at that amateurism, you look at the student athlete, you look at the collegiate model, on all three counts, the answer is no. Those don't even come close to representing the truth. Of the relationships that lie beneath those labels. And that couldn't be more true than with this lie that the NCAA has been telling for decades that these re- athletes are being brought in primarily as students, that their relationship is primarily a student and university relationship, that the athletic scholarship can't be paid for play because they're just being reimbursed for the reasonable expenses of attending college. And that is all a big fraud. And this case, this is Inquiry was going to expose it. In these antitrust suits, as I have said many times before, the NCAA has gone to extraordinary lengths and built their legal strategy around having courts simply accept their conceptualization of amateurism as an absolute trump card for any antitrust liability. And one of the reasons for that is that when you apply that full rule of reason analysis that the Ninth Circuit did, that Judge Wilkin did, you get to look under the hood of amateurism and it is not a pretty sight. And the NCAA and the Power Five don't want any factual inquiry into the nature of their business model. And the same thing is true with the student athlete. So now this was the student athlete's day in court. The NCAA has been propagandizing this phrase. Now they have the opportunity to defend it, not through marketing and propaganda, but through an adversary process where their ideas are challenged and they're subject to cross-examination and they're subject to the presentation of evidence and documents that completely destroy the NCAA's theory. And in this case, and this is important too, in this case, the evidentiary hearing lasted six days over a period of time, they weren't in consecutive days. And there were 11 witnesses that were called at this proceeding, and only two of those witnesses were were testifying for the athletes. Kane Coulter testified, and then some sports economists testified. So nine of the 11 witnesses that this hearing officer heard from were selected by Northwestern University. They represented Northwestern University interests, and most of them were athletics department personnel who, whose full-time job was to preserve the status quo and all of the, these principles that are attached to it. And in case you didn't know, I'll go ahead and let the cat out of the bag. The original hearing officer rules that these football players are indeed employees. And when when we go through the decision and the opinion, you can see it really wasn't even a close call. And that's the truth of the relationship. But what's important in the way that this proceeding played out, and I've reviewed all 1,500 pages of the transcripts from those hearings. I don't don't have access to all the documents, but I'm familiar with some of the documents that the hearing officer and the regional director relied on principally to really use those documents against Northwestern. So in the presentation of this case, nor- this was really Northwestern's case. They, they dominated from an evidentiary standpoint and from a witness standpoint. And it's important to understand that in these hearings, these labor hearings, The employer, in this case Northwestern, bears the burden of proving that no employment relationship exists. So there's a little section in this opinion that talks about the burden of proof. And the court says, a party seeking to exclude an otherwise eligible employee from the coverage of the act bears the burden of establishing a justification for the exclusion. Accordingly, it was Northwestern's burden to justify denying its scholarship football players employee status. So why does federal law put the burden on the employer? to prevent the very thing that is happening at the Power 5 schools through the NCAA's conceptualization of the student-athlete. And that is, they simply stick this disingenuous, dishonest label on the relationship without actually looking at what the true relationship is. So this proceeding forced Northwestern and the Power Five and the NCAA to prove up that label, and they couldn't do it. So the structure of this proceeding is really important because the process is saying to Northwestern University, you have made this declaration, you've made this determination, you've put these athletes in this classification that takes them outside the protections of employment law. And you have to prove up why that is true based on the facts that go to the true nature of the relationship. And that's something that the NCAA, the Power Five, and Northwestern University don't want to do because they know they can't prove that up and they didn't. So again, nine of the 11 witnesses testified for Northwestern University. And it's important to understand that in the media accounts leading up to, during, and after this hearing, the NCAA Power Five friendly media was trying to spin this as the steel workers are coming in and they're imposing their will on Northwestern University. The NCAA and its uh, interests are so good at trying to portray themselves as, as victims of these attacks on all these sacred principles. And that was the card they played. But the fact of the matter is that in this hearing, Northwestern University was the dominant actor, and the evidence, both the testimonial evidence and the documentary evidence, was their evidence. And so I just want to read through the list of witnesses that testified for the university, for Northwestern. And I'm going to list them in the order that they appeared. So we, we start off with Northwestern University's Associate Athletic Director for Compliance. Then we move to Northwestern's Deputy Director of Athletics for Internal Affairs. And then we have Northwestern's Director of Financial Aid. And that's for university-wide financial aid. There's not a separate financial aid office for the athletes. Then there is the Northwestern's Deputy Director of Athletics for Student-Athlete Welfare and Senior Women's Administrator. Then we have Patrick Fitzgerald, the head coach, the head football coach. And then we have Christopher Watson, who was the admissions director. And he that, again, that's for the university generally. Not There's no separate admissions officer in the athletics department. There's a liaison, and I think that one of those witnesses served that function. And then you had three athletes who testified, three football players who testified, ostensibly— on Northwestern's behalf, but when you read the hearing officer's opinion, almost all of the evidence that she relies on and the regional director relied on. Actually, the way it works is that the regional director, and this woman's name was Joyce Hofstra, or Hofstra, I'm sorry, like the university Hofstra. She took in all the evidence, and then the regional director, a guy whose last name is Orr, Peter Orr, he actually wrote the opinion. But in, in this opinion, all of the evidence that goes to the core factors and criteria that determine whether or not somebody is an employee or not they came from Northwestern's testimony, from Northwestern witnesses, and from Northwestern documents. Northwestern University proved the athlete's case for them. And when you listen to some of these titles, you start to understand why. There is just this bloated bureaucracy at Power Five universities in the athletics department. And Northwestern's probably less like that than most schools. I'm going to talk about that in a second. But you have this, these people... Who have these fluffy titles, and they're making a bunch of money, and all that money's coming from the revenue-producing athletes—these very football players—who they're trying to say are students and not employees, and those two things aren't mutually exclusive. We'll talk about that too. But they have—they live in this bubble where. All of these principles of amateurism and the student-athlete and the collegiate model are overlays to the administrative operations. And I don't know if these people really believe in them. You have to think that they do, or they've convinced themselves that they can buy into those principles. But within a lot of athletics departments, there is this self-righteous kind of crusade-like mentality that is identical to what you get at the NCAA national office that these people are doing God's work and there's just we're out there as foot soldiers and disciples and evangelists for amateurism and the student athlete and the collegiate model and you can't reason with people who think like that it's a cult-like way of viewing the enterprise and the NCAA has been very good at propagandizing that and like any cult you have circular reinforcement and amplification because all the people that you interact with believe the same thing or they have to pretend that they believe the same thing because that's a condition of being part of the membership. And if you are outside of that, then you are the enemy. You either are 100% in or you are 100% out. And that comes through in All of these forums where the NCAA is trotting in its propagandists, whether it's antitrust trials, whether it's uh, testimony before Congress, whether it's participation in some of these committees that are looking at nil. Once those people are brought into the group forum and they know that they are there to defend the interests of the status quo, they're they're just all in. They're totally all in. And that comes through loud and clear reading the transcripts of these hearings and really looking at some of these administrators who are responsible. They're the the middlemen in this whole corrupt business model, but they have a nice title and they have great credentials and they're smart, articulate people. And it's very easy to get sucked into the propaganda and they're representing powerful institutions. So they have the stamp of approval from these powerful institutions. And when that power gets aggregated in any context where those values are being challenged, it is really hard to fight against. And that's why I think what Kane Coulter did was so brave. And I'm going to talk about what happened on the backside of this, but he made a, a couple of unfortunate comments at the trial that I think were taken out of context. And then he just, the community turned on him. And I can't imagine what that must have been like and what kind of pressure he was under. But from the witness selection and the way the testimony was presented, it looked to me like Northwestern's strategy was that they were going to walk the hearing officer through the process of how they acquire these athletes how those athletes are brought through the system at every phase. And all of that was designed to show that at every step of this process in the recruitment, in the evaluation, and the assessment of the their academic credentials and the fit with Northwestern University, and then the offer of the scholarship, and then the way that they are treated as athletes, and then the values that they build around the, the program, that at every step of that process, they have the student, not the athlete, front and center in their mind. And and that means, of course, that I think these people who are all, I'm sure, wonderful people, <laughs> all believe that they truly do have their priorities straight and that when these kids come in, they are concerned primarily with their experience as a student, with the educational experience, with the well-being of the athletes. But when an independent third party looked at that process, the hearing officer and the regional director came away with the same conclusion that I think most reasonable people would come away with if they had access to that evidence. And that is that this is, this is ridiculous. These kids are employees. They're full-time employees. They're bringing in enormous value, and they are not getting paid any more than the value of their scholarship. That's the nature of the relationship, and you can wrap it up in all the fluffy packaging that you, that you want to, and you can use all these grand characterizations and made-up phrases from the 1950s to insinuate the goodness of your program I- into the relationship with these kids. But that doesn't change the truth of the relationship. And that's what's so difficult. And that's what's difficult for athletes' rights advocates in Congress. It's difficult for athletes' rights uh, attorneys in these federal lawsuits. But in this particular forum, because of the nature of the forum and because of the relevance of the employee uh, versus no employee issue, the NCAA couldn't run from it. Northwestern University couldn't run from it. And the, the, the truth of that relationship, that business relationship, was so obvious to the regional hearing officer and the regional director that in the opinion that they drafted, they used the word clearly, or it is clear that, or obviously. They're using these words that just suggest that the proffer of evidence that Northwestern put up to defend its contention that these football players were students and not employees, just just <laughs> didn't pass the blush test. And then the other thing that's really important to understand here is that in the mosaic of big-time college sports, and I'm going to use the Power 5, Northwestern University is really the gold standard when it comes to trying to bring together these principles that are in such profound conflict, and that is this professionalized business model, and then The desire to give these kids the opportunity to have a really life changing academic experience. And Northwestern does it the right way, they do the best that you can do. In in that crazy, dysfunctional business model. And when you read the transcript and you look at the people who testified and you look at their credentials, and particularly the athletes, these are amazing kids. The athletes who testified, both Coulter and the three athletes who testified ostensibly for Northwestern, just really impressive people. And so Northwestern's doing a lot of things right. And they're bringing in great kids and they don't find themselves in the crosshairs of the NCAA. And Coach Fitzgerald Gerald comes across as a really, really good coach and a good guy. And it was clear. That all four of those players had the utmost respect for Coach Fitzgerald and held him in in high regard. And uh, it's unfortunate that that I think Coulter's testimony was twisted a little bit and he used a couple words he shouldn't have used. But it was clear to me, and again, as a former athlete, you can read between the lines a little bit, that these guys really like Fitzgerald and the athletics director, Jim Phillips, who is now, I think, the commissioner of the ACC. And when this thing was filed initially, both Coach Fitzgerald and, and Phillips came out and really made comments that were supportive of athletes. Really taking a stand and, and trying to do the right thing. And I believe that came from a place of authenticity. And unfortunately, that dynamic changed when the athletes started winning. So after the regional board held that they were entitled to form a union because they were indeed employees, the, the worm turned and the dynamic just completely changed. And that is unfortunate. But the, the point of, of that is that Northwestern's doing it the right way. They graduate all their kids. They're at the top of the list in, in academic performance. And they have just a long list of academic All-Americans and All-Big Ten academic selection, all that stuff. So this is as good as it gets. So if you're going to have a case— where the student-athlete is going to be on trial, this is the best case you can hope for if you're the NCAA or the institution. If you're supporting institutional status quo interests in the current business model in the Power 5, and you have to take a school to court to defend the student-athlete, Northwestern's your number one choice. And there's some other great options out there, Duke, Stanford, Vanderbilt. I'm not trying to leave anybody out, but Northwestern is right at the top of that list. So this is as good a case as the NCAA or the Power Five was going to be able to make for the argument that these kids are really students first. So it's in that context that the court looked at the actual evidence and not the propaganda or the labels that the NCAA and the in-system stakeholders apply to the labor force. And they just looked at it and said, no, no, these kids are employees even in the setting that is the, the best-case scenario in big-time college sports. said, so no, these kids are employees. And again, I think when I get to some of the language that the opinion used, I don't think it was a close call. And so one more thing before I actually get to the legal standard and how the court applied it. The, the athletes did a really smart thing. They weren't arguing that there was this false choice between – student on the one hand and employee on the other. That is a false choice. And what they said was you can be both. The opposite of employee is not student. Those two capacities are not mutually exclusive. And the NCAA wants you to believe that. And that is built into the propaganda. And Judge Wilkin came around to that and said this explicitly in talking about remedies in both O'Bannon and Austin, that somehow you can't be a student or you cease to be a student if you receive a penny above the full cost of attendance, athletic scholarship. It's just ridiculous on its face. But federal judges buy into it. Senators buy into it. State legislators buy into it. Smart people who are trying to do work on nil outside of those forms, they buy into it. And it just seamlessly gets brought into all of these consequential discussions among really powerful decision makers. So that was a good framing. And then the court begins its actual analysis and applying the facts to the criteria. And I'm just going to start with the criteria and then I'm going to go through the facts so you understand how they are relevant. So there are three primary criteria that courts use to decide whether someone is an employee under federal law. And an employee is defined as a person who performs services for another, one, under a contract of hire, two, subject to the other's control or right of control, and three, in return for payment. So there are three relevant components that have to be proven up. One, there has to be a contract. What is the contract? Two, does the employer or the person who you're claiming is the employer have control? And what is the extent of that control? And then three, are you paid? Is there a, a form of payment? So those three things are pretty basic elements of a business relationship. And so the court frames its analysis around those three components, and it starts with a very detailed set of uh, findings on the facts that were presented. And that's really important here because the overwhelming evidence that the hearing officer relied on came from Northwestern University. So the hearing officer and the regional director, they walk through the entire process from the time an athlete is recruited to the time they get their scholarship to the time they enroll and begin providing their athletic services to the university. And then they do a really detailed breakdown of the hours that the athletes spend on various components of their requirements under the contract that they sign, which is the athletics scholarship. And Then they also compare that to the student side. And so the court begins really with the recruiting process to frame the very beginning of the relationship and the purpose of the relationship. And the court makes clear from the very outset that the primary criteria in the selection of this pool of Northwestern students is their athletic talent, ability, and skill. So. The football coach is seeking athletes first and the way the process works, if they meet that threshold criteria, are they suitable athletes, then they look at whether they can be successful as students at Northwestern and they look at their credentials to see if they can be admitted with a straight face to Northwestern. And again, Northwestern's maintained very high standards in that regard and so it struck, I guess, as good a balance as you can. And Coulter had a nice record and so did all these guys who testified. But the point is that the threshold consideration was athletic ability. And that dominates the relationship from the very beginning all the way through to the very end. And then the court looks at how they go about determining this academic fit, the fitness for admission. And so they have somebody in the athletics department whose primary responsibility it is to review the academic credentials after they've made the decision that the that this uh, athlete is suitable for the football team. And then the athletics department does this kind of uh, quick look at all of the criteria that the admissions office would look at, and then they coordinate with the admissions office. There's a a direct line there. So even though technically the admissions office isn't involved in these initial qualifications and threshold decisions, they have a role and the pre-certification process. So the athletics department says, here's what we got. What's your preliminary analysis? And then he says, ah, thumbs up, thumbs down and thumbs up doesn't mean guaranteed admission. So then the coach makes a formal scholarship offer and the scholarship document, and it is an athletic scholarship. It is a football scholarship, and it's called a tender. So the athlete is presented with two documents, the National Letter of Intent, which basically says, I intend to go to Northwestern University. And then the other is the actual contract with the terms of the contract and the duties of both parties. And basically the school's duty is to provide the full athletic scholarship and the opportunity to play on the football team. And the opportunity to be a student to the extent you can be a student in that relationship. And in exchange for that, the athlete provides his athletic skill, talent, and labor to the university. And the specific terms of that tender offer, that contract, are all built around the recipient's athletic obligations and the circumstances under which the athletics aid. And that scholarship, that athletic scholarship can be revoked. And another thing that's important to remember is that Northwestern was offering four-year scholarships. They weren't doing the one-year renewable thing. They were doing four-year scholarships. And the reason that's important is that, and I talked about this back with the Walter Byers episode and what was happening in the 50s and these workers compensation claims that were a, a threat. But the shorter the term of the contract and the broader the criteria that the coach has available to either renew or not renew the contract, the closer that comes to a contract for hire. So this four-year scholarship looked a lot less than that. So this is, the, again, another plus for the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries because this four-year scholarship is the least like a contract for hire. But even so, the court said, wait a minute, we have to look at the circumstances under which that scholarship could be withdrawn. And here they are. If the player renders himself ineligible from intercollegiate competition, engages in, two, engages in serious misconduct, 3. Engages in conduct resulting in criminal charges. 4. Abuses team rules as determined by the coach. 5. Voluntarily withdraws from the sport at any time for any reason. 6. Accepts compensation for participating in an athletics contest. 7. Agrees to be represented by an agent. So under all the, any of those circumstances, some of which are really broad and discretionary, a coach can pull a scholarship. Now, Fitzgerald wasn't the kind of guy who was going to do that, and he honored almost all those scholarships. I think the evidence showed that only two players under his tenure had ever had their scholarship revoked. So I have no doubt that when he made that four-year scholarship offer, he intended to stand by it, in, in and almost, in almost every case, he did. But looking at the nature of the relationship as defined in the contract, the employer here Northwestern University had broad discretion and all of these requirements, all of these requirements go to that individual's relationship to the university as an athlete, not as a student. And that was really important to the uh, court in this case, I think. So then the court turns to the ways in which the university and the football program mm-hmm. controlled the lives of the athletes. And so under these Three criteria. The first is there a contract? Does the employer exercise control? And are the putative employees being paid? That the first element is there a contract? Was clearly met by this tender offer and the fact that it defines a business relationship relating to the athlete's services and labor. The court then turns to the control issue. What can the employer ask of the employee? And so the court breaks that down into a couple of components and starts with some of the basic rules that the athletes have to subject themselves to. And There's an entire athletic department handbook that all uh, athletes get, not just the football players. But the court notes that, This applies only to the athletes in that Northwestern's regular students and the student population is not subject to those rules and policies. The court then looks at all the ways that the athletics department and the football program micromanage the lives of these athletes. They have to provide detailed information on the kind of car that they drive. They have to abide by a social media policy that restricts what they can post. And then they are not allowed to deny a coach's friend request. I I really like that one. They can't give media interviews unless they are directed to participate in them, and they're arranged by the athletics department. And players are prohibited from profiting off of their name, image, and reputation, including selling merchandise and autographs. And at the same time, they're required to sign a release. And even though the NCAA no longer requires the name, image, and likeness release uh, after the O'Bannon case, the conferences and the schools still do and then they have to submit themselves to uh, drug and alcohol policies, and they have to dress a certain way when they're traveling. A lot of these things are things that a regular corporate employer might require of their employees. And then they talk about the time commitment. And really, I think this is where the rubber uh, met the road. And, and a lot of this came from King Coulter's testimony, but The three athletes who testified for Northwestern said the same thing. So I don't think there was any question that from the player standpoint, the time commitments were as they are described in the court's opinion. But basically, these guys are kept working on football business almost year round over a calendar year they have a total of nine weeks of discretionary time you have the regular season then you have the spring season most people know about that but then there are these mini seasons in in the summer and then in the preseason and then between the regular season and spring football and then between spring football and leading into the summer so they are kept busy year round and even though the NCAA has these ridiculous rules on time balance that are supposed to restrict the number of hours that an athlete spends on their athletic duties to 20 hours a week. Those rules are a joke. And they're called countable athletically related activities. And there's a whole list of things you can and can't do. The, the, The shorthand for that is CARA. And the court analyzes Uh, Kara and basically exposes it as a sham because all of these extra requirements are imposed on these athletes and so there are all these workouts that are done that are uh, mandatory and they are being monitored and they're not directly supervised because that would count as practice so you have a a team captain or a team leader or a position leader running a lot of these practices or you have a strength and conditioning coach doing a lot of this in-between stuff where they're really trying to keep the athletes uh, in top shape, heading into the next important phase of the season. But this rounds out to between 20 to 25 hours a week for these mini things, the things that fit in between the, the, the most important parts of the season. But during the preseason, they're working 50 to 60 hours a week, according to the evidence presented by Northwestern University. And then during the end season, they're working 40 to 50 hours a week. And the court kind of walks through what an away game looks like and what a home game looks like. And the night before a home game, the players are bused to a hotel, so they're they're in a protected environment. And then on an away game, there's this myth that guys are studying on the bus, and that's like some wonderful, uplifting student-athlete image. But that really doesn't happen very much. And then the court pulls out a quote from the handbook, the football team's handbook, that says, quote, When we travel, we are traveling for one reason, to win, and win is in full caps, to win a football game. We will focus all of our energy on winning the game. And that's the reality. The players know that. And the court uses as an example an away game at Michigan. And if you're on the bus, it's a five-hour trip from uh, Chicago to Ann Arbor. And if you're on the bus to that game, you're thinking about Michigan. You're not thinking about your chemistry exam or your sociology paper. So, And the players, again, they understand that. And then the last thing the court addresses in its uh, characterization of the facts and its framing of the issues is really important because it talks about the revenue generated by the football program to put into context the stakes that exist in these relationships, these business relationships. And again, you have to remember that Northwestern is probably on the lower end of the revenue generation in in football compared to other Big Ten universities, and it's the only private university in the Big Ten. But between the period 2003 and 2012, the football program generated total revenues of $235 million and incurred expenses of $159 million. But remember, under this Miles Brand conceptualization of the student-athlete, that $159 million in expenses wasn't all going to football and men's basketball. That was going to fund scholarships for non-revenue athletes. So built into those expenses are really the infrastructure of the entire athletics department and all these athletic salaries and all these bloated administrative positions. And then and so that comes down to about 30 million a year in revenue and about 21 in expenses. And you know, that's big money. Again, it's not the same kind of money you'd find at Michigan or Ohio State, but it's big money. And so, you know, there's no question that these athletes have Enormous pressure on them to perform in a way that has the revenue producing products maximizing their market value as the collegiate model demands, and that that relationship can't honestly be characterized as anything but an employer employee relationship. So then the court goes into its analysis and It looks at these three basic criteria, and it starts with, let's see, I think it starts with the compensation issue. So the court says, scholarship football players perform services for the benefit of the employer for which they receive compensation. And the very first sentence of that section says, clearly, The employers' players perform valuable services for their employer. And it talks about the the money and then the exposure and all the things that the university gets from the athletes' labors. And it says, to further the end of, of providing the most competitive team possible, quote, the players on scholarship are initially sought out, recruited, and ultimately granted scholarships because of their athletic prowess on the football field. Thus, it is clear that the scholarships the players receive is compensation for the athletic services they perform for the employer throughout the calendar year, but especially during the regular season. The court then weaves that, what I think is an obvious fact that the scholarship is compensation, into the nature of the contract. And it says it is clear that the scholarship that the players receive are in exchange for the athletic services being performed. Indeed, the scholarship is clearly tied to the player's performance of athletic services as evidenced by the fact that the scholarship can be immediately canceled if the player voluntarily withdraws from the team or abuses team rules. Then, so we basically have the two criteria met there. You have the compensation criteria and you have the contract criteria. Now we're going to go to control and the court concludes very uh, readily that the control that the university exercises over these athletes is that of an employer exercising control over an employee. And the court kind of restates all of the time commitments and all the rules the players have to follow and the way that the football program micromanages the lives of these students. And then, so the court concludes, all these tests have been met and we have absolute control, we have a contract, we have compensation. Then the court goes to addressing a case that the Northwestern lawyers relied heavily on, and that was a case called Brown University in which some graduate students at Brown contended that they were employees and not students. And the court in this Northwestern case basically said, look, that case doesn't even apply because there is at least a plausible case to be made that the graduate students in Brown were actually students first. You can't make that case with these athletes. So the court says although I find that this statutory test is inapplicable and that's the one they applied in Brown. I'm going to talk about that in a second. In the Insta case, because the player's football related duties are unrelated to their academic studies, unlike the graduate assistants whose teaching and research duties are inextricably related to their graduate degree requirements for the reasons discussed below the outcome would not change even after applying uh, the four factors in Brown to this case. So the court in Northwestern is saying, look, it doesn't even apply, but we're going to go and analyze it anyway, probably anticipating that the case would be appealed and that the Brown test might be relevant in another court's judgment. So the, the court uses these four tests under the Brown case. And the first one is whether or not The football players, as with the graduate students in Brown, are primarily students. That was the first criteria, and was a fundamental criteria. When looking at these two possible capacities that you have, which are you more of? And in the student-athlete context, it's are you more student or are you more employee? And this court in the Northwestern case just pretty much brushed that aside by saying that it, it cannot be said The Northwestern scholarship players are, quote unquote, primarily students. And it lists all the time requirements and says that not only is this more hours than many undisputed full-time employees work at their jobs, it is also many more hours than the players spend on their studies. In fact, the players do not attend academic classes while in training camp or the first few weeks of the regular season. And the court pointed to the evidence and said that during the season when school starts, the football players are working 40 to 50 hours per week on football related activities while only spending about 20 hours per week attending classes. Then the court goes to the second criteria, and that's whether the athletic duties are a core element of their education degree requirements. And in Brown, that was true for these graduate students. The graduate students in Brown got academic credit for the courses that they taught, and that teaching was considered an element of their degree. So they had to successfully teach as a primary component of the work that they had to do to achieve their graduate degree. And the court compares that, the Northwestern Court compares that to what the athletes do. And it notes that it is undisputed that Northwestern scholarship players do not receive any academic credit for playing football. They're also not required to play football in order to obtain their undergraduate degree. The fact that the players undoubtedly learn great life lessons from participating on the football team and take with them important values such as character dedication, perseverance, and teamwork is insufficient to show that their academic relationship with the employer is primarily an academic one. And that just turns the collegiate model upside down. And this notion that uh, Miles Brand. Uh, put out in his conceptualization of the collegiate model in his 2006 State of the Association speech, in which he said, look, there's just this inextricable link between the education component of athletics participation and the athletics component. They're one and the same. And because athletics is inherently educational, it's perfectly appropriate for us to have athletics as part of our university mission. So then the third thing under this graduate student analysis is who supervises the work. And for graduate students, the faculty did. The faculty were completely responsible for all interactions with the graduate students. And it was obviously an academic enterprise, an academic exchange. (laughs) For big-time football and big-time men's basketball players, they have virtually zero to do with the faculty when they're performing in their capacity as athletes. Their coaches aren't faculty members. You may have a few that have a nominal appointment or teach a course or have some title that makes them some kind of vice president on the academic side, but they're not faculty members. They're not there to teach these kids in courses for which the kids get credit. They're football and basketball coaches and they are fulfilling a business purpose for the university all right and then there's this final thing and this is really important because the northwestern university and the ncaa they claim that as in brown university the athletes compensation was not pay for services performed but rather financial aid To attend the university, and that's really how the NCAA structures the athletic scholarship. And in the Division One manual, the NCAA Division One manual, they talk in terms of financial aid. They don't talk about payment. They don't talk about any kind of exchange for in kind exchange for the athletic services. They talk in terms of financial aid, which suggests that the money is for an education related purpose. And so the the court looks at that and says, no, that's not the case at all. This isn't financial aid for academic purposes. This is pay for play. And the two relevant facts in the Brown case were, the graduate assistants in that case received the same compensation as the graduate fellows for whom no teaching or research was required and two that the graduate students compensation was not tied to the quality of their work and the Northwestern Court contrasts that with these athletes and they say that the employer never offers a scholarship to a prospective student unless they intend to provide an athletic service to the employer in fact The players can have their scholarships immediately canceled if they voluntarily withdraw from the football team. And they then compare the scholarship athletes to walk-ons. And this is a really interesting way of looking at it, but it is true. In contrast to scholarships, need-based financial aid that walk-ons or other regular students receive is not provided in exchange for any type of service to the employer. For this reason, the walk-ons are free to quit the team at any time without losing their financial aid because their financial aid has absolutely nothing to do with their athletic ability. And then the court continues, this simply is not true for players receiving football scholarships who stand to lose their scholarship if they, quote unquote, voluntarily withdraw from the team. And that's that's just the truth of the relationship so the board readily concludes that these athletes are employees and then basically certifies them to be able to vote on whether uh, they can form a union and so there's going to be this vote on on whether they're going to become a union and of course immediately northwestern university appeals and then all of these ncaa power five in system stakeholder interests Launch a legal and public relations crusade, self righteously proclaiming the virtue and truth of the student athlete. And so they appeal. And remember, the, let's see, so the timing was the case began in January. It was tried in February. The regional board's opinion came out in March. And then there's a, an appeal after that ruling in, in March. And then in August, this is the last thing in the timeline I talked about, August 17th. The big National Relations Board in D.C., who takes in all the appeals from the various regions, it issued an interesting ruling that basically mooted the regional decision, but it wasn't on the merits, really. And at this point, I'm showing my ignorance of labor laws, but there are all kinds of exceptions to when an entity can try to become a union. And again, the state and federal laws are different and public and private actors and institutions are treated differently. And Northwestern was private. And in the context of the other schools that will be affected by a ruling that they were indeed employees, you could have upheaval in the power five with 53 schools that are public institutions. So here, I'll just read how the court put it, the appellate court put it. Because this case raises important issues concerning the scope and application of federal law, as well as whether the board should assert jurisdiction in the circumstances of this case, even if the play- players in the petition for unit are statutory employees, we granted Northwestern's request for review. After carefully considering the arguments of the parties and the interested amici, we find that it would not effectuate the policies of the act to assert jurisdiction in this case, even if we assume without deciding that the grant and aid scholarship players are employees within the meaning of federal law. As explained below, we address this case in the absence of explicit congressional direction regarding whether the board should exercise jurisdiction. We conclude that asserting jurisdiction in this case would not serve to promote the stability in labor relations. Our decision today is limited to the grant and aid scholarship football players covered by the petition in this particular case, whether we might assert jurisdiction in another case involving grant and aid scholarship football players, or other types of scholarship athletes is a question we need not and do not address at this time. And that's important. So basically, they viewed it as a jurisdictional issue. They punted. They didn't want to really turn uh, college sports upside down, which in affirmance of the regional board's decision would have done. This would have been just the dagger in the heart of this this whole house of cards that's built on a pack of lies. And the centerpiece in that array of lies is the myth of the student-athlete and the myth that these high-value revenue producing athletes can't be students and employees at the same time. That's just a silly dichotomy, but it's one that that the decision makers have bought into. But importantly, the national board did not challenge the factual findings of the regional board. And I'm not sure it could have. They would have had to really struggle to try to come up with an analysis of the law that would have neutralized the overwhelming evidence that these athletes are indeed employees. So this case was so important, one, because it established at the evidentiary level, at the fact-based level, that these athletes were employees. And they we had an independent third party looking at the actual nature of the relationship, not how the NCAA and Power Five have propagandized it. And going back to the Walter Byers' um, invention of the student-athlete, That was devised to serve a misleading business purpose to avoid potential liability. And this is a much different context and a much more direct analysis of the true relationship because the fundamental question is, are these athletes employees? And the only logical common sense just answer is, of course. And I just want to close out this discussion of the Northwestern case by pointing out the consequence of these athletes being deemed employees rather than, quote-unquote, students. And that is that the entire business model rests on the non-employee status mm-hmm. of these athletes. And if they're employees, then amateurism is out the window. The collegiate model is out the window because they are already being paid So this whole house of cards that the athletic scholarship is not pay for play just would go away. And that's exactly what Justice Alito was saying in his questions to Seth Waxman in the March 31st oral argument at Austin. He's saying, look, this scholarship is payment, and if it's payment, we're not really Dickering over whether or not these athletes are employees and are being paid for their services. We're dickering over how much they should be paid and what the form of payment should be. Walter Byers said the same thing in his 2007 deposition in the White case. He said, to heck with this full cost of attendance scholarship argument, the entire athletic scholarship is pay for play. And the Northwestern case proves that. And then during the fall football discussions and decisions in the post-COVID era in 2020, all of these schools that have been saying, no, these kids are just students and we're worried about them and we care about their well-being and we're all about doing right by these student-athletes, they pressed these athletes into their full employment role. So that these schools could make money. And that was uh, really a big deal here in North Carolina when UNC decided to press forward along with the ACC with fall football while the entire campus was shut down and they sent everyone home. So as I've said before, these UNC football players and all the football players in the ACC and the Big Twelve and the uh, SEC—they weren't just employees under these COVID orders, these executive orders coming out from the governor's office in all these Power Five states. They were essential employees because they're being pressed to work while categories of employees university wide were being told, "Don't come to this campus because it's not safe." It's not safe for the professors, it's not safe for the students, it's not safe for the administrators, but boy, we're going to make sure it's safe for these athletes. And that is just really difficult to swallow. In fact, the UNC student paper, after that decision was made at the institutional level, they said that they were going to refuse to use the term student-athlete any longer. And I think that was an interesting decision. So the last thing about this that's so important is that this propagandized version of the student-athlete, which the institutional interests have clung to without any inquiry into the true nature of the relationship between these high-value revenue-producing athletes and the beneficiaries of that labor, they have abandoned some of the most core principles of higher education. And one of them is to make decisions based on evidence-based inquiries and to use critical analysis and critical examination to look at the truth of the issue that's being analyzed. But these institutions, some of our most prestigious institutions of higher education, are simply dispensing with the facts. They don't want to to analyze the facts. They don't want anybody talking about the facts and the true relationship between the athletes and the institutions. They want to indulge the fantasy and the label that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries apply to that relationship. And then it just is because it has been proclaimed. And that blind deference to this propagandized label of the student athlete is being applied in the same way by uh, Congress and by Federal courts and by these independent bodies that are looking at name, image, and likeness compensation. This concept of the student athlete just gets swept in without any discussion of what it truly means and what the consequences of that label really mean for these athletes, because it means that they are being denied the benefits of participating on equal terms as any other American can in the free markets in uh, America. And that I just think is indefensible. All right. The next thing I want to talk about in this remarkable year of 2014, I think is the momentum that, carried into the O'Bannon trial, how the Power Five were starting to formulate their demand for autonomy legislation, and then tie that into this really important hearing on July 11th of 2014, where Mark Emmert went before the Senate Commerce Committee and made the case for the autonomy schools without uh, even disclosing that that's what he was doing. He was doing the bidding of the autonomy schools who behind the scenes were threatening to leave unless they got uh, everything they wanted from the NCAA. So Emmert goes to Congress And he makes the case for all of the benefits that the Power Five want to provide and makes it appear as if this is an NCAA program. And it's fascinating. So we're going to talk about that. And there was some really interesting testimony there. And then we're going to talk a little bit about what exactly the autonomy legislation looks like and then how the uh, full cost of attendance scholarship changed after the O'Bannon ruling. So the O'Bannon court ruled on August 8th of 2014 and just two days before that, the NCAA Board of of directors granted the Power Five this autonomy status, and those were linked together. But you had this full cost of attendance scholarship coming in through abandon as nil compensation. And then soon after that, you had the uh, Power Five through their autonomy authority and their autonomy classification offering a different kind of full cost of attendance scholarship. And it was really interesting because that was relevant in the attorney's fees battle in O'Bannon. And I think I'll talk a little bit about that as well. So I think we're going to wrap this up. And I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always a pleasure to have you along. And I really hope you're back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.